0: Well good morning. Uh, it is our joy to have you here at the chapel today and this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad on it. in it. There's much for us to be thankful about and we rejoice that you're with us. If you're visiting with us we're especially delighted that you're here. And please uh, don't leave too quickly afterwards. Come back and fellowship with us uh, if that works for you right out there in the foyer. We'd love to get to know you better, but it's, uh, it's our joy to have you with us here today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, our hearts um, are overwhelmed with thanksgiving. There is so much, Lord, that we can praise you for, the life that you've given us. The ability to breathe and move around and do things to live in this country a whole host of things lord most of all father we thank you for the life that you've given us in jesus christ that you sent your beloved son to die on the cross for our sins to rise from the grave to rule on high who's coming back one day father that gives us such perspective we thank you for that, Lord. Father, I pray too, Lord, for, for our congregation, Lord, for our families. There's a lot of burdens we carry. Some of them are financial. Some of them are relational. Some of them, Lord, are physical. We, we, we bear these pains, Lord, and in each one of them, may we bring our need to you, For you are the great provider. You walk with us through each of those challenges and difficulties. So, Father, we pray for our family. We pray for our church. We pray that we would be a church that is a true light in this community. Where the gospel goes forth powerfully, Lord. And and we see ourselves as being equipped to go out of here as missionaries and ministers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our local and national leaders. Lord, you call us to submit to leadership. You, you call us, Father, to pray for leadership, and so we do that. And our prayer, Lord, that you will bring many of our leaders to open up their eyes so that they might see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and become believers. That would be our first prayer for them, Father, that they would know Christ. Lord, I pray you will bless and encourage them when they make decisions that are right, that are appropriate, that honor you. And Father, when they make decisions that don't, Lord, I pray you will frustrate those decisions and that you will teach them in the midst of those things that you are the sovereign God over all and not them. So Father, we commit our leaders to you. We commit our lives to you. We pray that you give us open hearts to hear your word this day and father to be transformed into your beloved son to his image in Christ's name I pray amen
1: are saved, lost are
2: saved, find their way at the sound.
1: Worthy is the Lamb.
2: Jesus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us. The Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up. Father of kindness, you have poured out grace, you brought me
1: out of darkness, you have filled me with peace,
2: give her mercy, you're my help. Hey!
1: Lord, we believe that this morning. We believe that your promises are yes and amen. We believe that we can stand on them. That we can rest in them. We can trust them. What you tell us from your word is true. Give us that peace this morning and trust in you. Let's sing, I will
2: rest. I will rest in your promises my confidence I will rest in your promises My confidence is your faithfulness
1: Yes, lord this morning we we do stand here lord in this church forgiven at the cross god we thank you for that forgiveness that was given to us through the death of your son on the cross we are forgiven our sins are wiped away we are set free forever for eternity if we just simply believe that jesus christ is lord and has come to save my soul if we give our lives over to him Then we are saved and set free. And many of us in this room are that, Lord. We are on that side of the cross. We have looked at it. We have seen our shamefulness. We've seen our sin. We've seen the problems in ourselves. And we have looked to Jesus for forgiveness. And, Lord, we continually stumble and fall, and you are not unaware of that. You know that, Lord. You know that we are going to struggle to become more like you as time goes on. But we long to be that way. We long to be more like Christ. We thank you, God, this morning that we can sing together and sing of your mercies, how great your name is, Lord, that your promises are true, and we can sing about the cross and your resurrection that has changed our lives forever and completely fully, Lord. So thank you this morning that we can sing. We ask now you to help us to hear your word, Lord. Open it up for us. Give um, uh, the spirit to Pastor Tim this morning. Work through him, Lord, as he speaks uh, to us, Lord. Thank you for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen.
3: It's hard to follow a song like that and say I'm going to bring a little more. Okay. Uh, A beautiful exposition of the cross of Christ that changes our lives. So, on Friday night, which was actually Saturday morning, about 2.20 a.m., my my uh, phone rang. And that's, that's always one of those mixed moments. You're hoping it's spam. I would actually like spam at 2.30 in the morning. It was... Uh, my son-in-law from Kansas, just simply saying, I called to say the water broke. So, well, either there's a flood or something better. And uh, so, uh, it's six thirty, seven thirty 7.30, uh, yesterday in the morning, a little boy named Judah was born. And so, yeah, we don't know who the grandparents are, but... <laughs> so, no, it's uh, a blessing from God. Uh... So, uh, they don't look like me, though, so... I want you to turn to uh, Mark chapter 14, and you can let the children be dismissed if they have not gone already, okay, for junior church. Mark chapter 14 is uh, <clears throat> contains one of my favorite... Accounts in the Gospels. Um, as I was thinking through this text, I <clears throat> I was thinking about the word extravagance because I don't think there is any other word that appropriately captures this text. When I think about extravagance, I think about excess. Uh, three or four years ago, my wife and I somehow got caught up in the uh, vibe of the Lehigh Valley Phantoms. That's a minor league hockey team for the Flyers. We started going to games during the playoffs. They had just an amazing run that year. And for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea for go to the, to take my wife to that event. And uh, we sat in section 120, which I had no clue that these are the fanatics. Uh, <laughs> these are the, the rabid fans that like the fights, okay? And so... We spent tonight watching people in excess, uh, expressing themselves in ways to me that seemed like utterly out of proportion to what was happening. And the funny part is, when my wife is in that kind of situation, she just laughs. So the more stupid people got, the more my wife was laughing at their excess. And I said, honey, at the end of the night, you look like the one that's drunk. (laughs) Excess. My two favorite movies are Big Fat Greek Wedding and Father of the Bride. And those two movies really... Kind of the central theme of those movies is there's weddings occurring... And everything is way out of proportion. Okay? I mean, the whole Big Fat Greek Wedding thing is... Just everything is in excess. It's extravagant. And for the dad in the movie, it's all without justification. It's It's reckless. Same thing is true, I've noticed at uh, weddings. Um, our middle daughter got married last May. And uh, the only thing I like about COVID is that we put off a wedding for a phenomenal amount of money. <laughs> it was great. We didn't have to think about who to invite. We didn't have to agonize over a list. And... Uh, it, it was, I mean, for, for me as a, as a gentleman in this context, I, I just thought the savings was one of the more beautiful parts of it. <laughs> so, uh, excess, extravagance. Extravagance refers to that which is excessive, elaborate, out of proportion, lacking restraint in use of resources, therefore Careless. And this is a text in which there is an event that is clearly extravagant, and the question is, was it reckless? Okay, it's clearly extravagant. The question is, does it fall into the negative category of that word, or into the positive category of that word? To understand that, we have to look at this text, and I want to read for you from Mark 14, 1 through verse 11, and this you know we're in the last week of Christ's public life, just a few chapters prior to this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. He's gone to the He's already been there for one Passover, two Passovers. This is the third, which marks out the third year of his life. And at the end of that year, the purpose for his coming is realized. Okay? So you were in the final week, probably midweek. Thursday's the arrest that leads to the Kangaroo courts of the night that follows into crucifixion on Friday. Okay, so we're probably on Wednesday more than likely. That's the setting. It says, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So that gives you, everything is ramping up in relationship to antagonism towards Christ, which has now morphed into a direct hatred of Christ that must find resolution in his demise. Okay. That's the, the mindset of the religious establishment. So Two days away, they're scheming. They are trying to find a way to arrest secretly and kill him. And then it says, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. And the simple idea of that is this. The the Passover was like Independence Day for Israel. Okay? It was when they remembered their great deliverance from the stronghold and the the steel jaws of the giant of Egypt. Okay? It's when they remembered that they were set free by the hand of God. So there are literally, according to some texts, millions of people that come into the city for this Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread all tied together as a celebration, as a remembrance of the freedom of the people of Israel. So they're there for that purpose. The concern of the religious establishment is we so want to kill Christ, but we can't ignore the fact that he is a popular respected rabbi so if we snatch him and put him to death the people that showed up on palm sunday to say hosanna god save may riot and cause rome to come hard hard down on jerusalem and bring judgment against them so they're they're trying to balance this all out with the one thing they cannot suppress and balance is that they despise jesus because he has ripped off the mask of their hypocrisy and shown them for who they really are and so the hatred level picks up and that's the context in which this story now occurs it says while he was in bethany which is two miles from jerusalem two miles from the place of the of of the palm sunday gathering uh two miles from the disreputable temple It says he was reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper. Here's the fascinating thing. Okay, just context. Jesus is two miles away from the religious system that is is in decline to its demise to be overthrown. AD 70 certainly utterly and completely destroyed. 37 years later. But Jesus has forecasted their demise by pushing them aside. So you have a disreputable temple, and you have a guy who can't go to that temple because of religious regulations. He's a leper. So Jesus is at his house with someone who in that context would be unclean. And it says, in that setting, a woman who notably is unnamed comes with an alabaster jar, a flask made from minerals, crushable. It's full of very expensive perfume, pure nard, which simply means that it is a high-quality store of value. She broke the jar. That literally would probably mean to break the neck off the flask, which would render it unsealable. Okay, and this is one of the small features of this story. She broke the jar and poured its entire context, contents on his head, and then John will tell you that she also lets her hair fall down. And with that, completely anoints, by anointing the head and the feet, completely anoints the body of Christ. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly and repeatedly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This extravagance is well placed. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want to. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my body for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest. Judas had it to portray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, because what is Judas? He's an insider who can bring an accusation against Christ that would hold credibility. So, they were delighted and promised to give him money. Fascinating. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over or many of our translations will say to betray him. At the heart of this story is extravagance. And my prayer for this morning is that God would make us so. That God would confront the apathy that is often present in our hearts. And make us believers who are extravagant. So one thing you'll notice is verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 have the same theme. Okay? They are about the hatred of the religious establishment towards Christ. Sandwiched in between those two sets of verses, you find this story. Okay? And it's important that you understand that the story, this account, has a context. In the midst of hatred and moving towards death, there is this beautiful experience and telling of an account of a woman who comes, breaks the neck off of a bottle of pure nard of what would be highly precious, what, what we would in our culture call a store of value. It, it, it means something, and she takes that, and irrevocably breaks the jar, can't get it back, pours it out. And, and the Gospel of John chapter 12 says that the fragrance filled the room. Meaning, anyone in the context of that environment would know that something that could be deemed as a little over the top has occurred. Okay, so it, it's literally filling the place. And that is then the setting in which we find The response is that extravagance often elicits from people. The other side note you might want to make is that this anointing of head was something that was often done for royalty. And the anointing of the feet captures in a bigger picture in relationship to the crosswork of Jesus. So verses 4 and 5 lead us into the response of the disciples corporately to this act. And I'm calling this simply the critique, okay? So their question is, why this waste? It's a fascinating statement. They were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste? And the indignantly to one another speak tells you that this is not simply something that Judas is thinking. Okay, He's not the only one who is taking clear offense to what happens. If you go to the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 12, you'll find that Judas is the only person who is spoken of as reacting. I think what happens is Judas is an instigator. He starts a conversation about the appropriateness of such an act given the care for the poor that is so prevalent among us. You can kind of see that fitting Judas's M.O. They, as a group, finally begin to protest indignantly against her. It's in the present tense. It just means there was a repeated accusation making her feel pressure for what seems to be over the top, therefore ruled as inappropriate. They accused her of a lack of judgment, of being way out of proportion. In the end of verse 5 it says, and they rebuked her harshly. Some translations will say they bristled like porcupines against her. They, they were so frustrated with her that they wanted to do damage to her. Not physically, but emotionally to express strong disapproval. It's fascinating when you read through the, the text in John chapter 12. Because there it, it tells you that Judas is the one who is reacting against this. His response is, we need to be more reasonable and more charitable and more wise about how we deal with such things. But the truth is, he is an utter hypocrite. Because if you read the text in John 12, it tells you exactly what Judas's motive is. Judas was the treasurer. This isn't to say every church treasurer is bad. I don't know where Dave Mercer is. I made the mistake of saying that to Bob Dietrich one time. (laughs) And I shouldn't have done it, but we had a good laugh over it. Judas is here's what the text says it says Judas used to keep the bag and he would partake of what was put into it. Okay? So his objection to her extravagance is sheer and utter hypocrisy. But it sucks in the disciples into the rebuke. Because they don't know that the guy that watches the money is himself an embezzling thief. And so his reaction about the poor is picked up by Christ. He's like, okay, Judas, let's talk about that one. So the critique ends... Judas's real motive is exposed and they are rebuking her harshly. By way of application, can I say this? When you go all in for Christ, you need to anticipate critique from apathetic Christians and from those that don't know the stunning value of Jesus. I think most of us anticipate that And as a result, live a mediocre Christian life because we don't want to deal with what happens to this woman. And we settle for a Christian life that in no way reflects the level of sacrifice that our Savior made. This woman seems to have no regard for what is said. in the context of categoric rejection of her extravagance. Here's, I think, the danger for us as believers. I think we want to be respected. I fall prey to this. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of man brings a snare. It sets a trap. And I believe that many of us fall into that trap. If you crave respectability, if you crave appearing to be a balanced Christian, Longing for the applause and respect of people, even if humbly and unwittingly. It will stifle Christ's following, and you will forfeit the applause that matters most. see, I, I know. I, I've been in public ministry long enough. I know how to get people's applause. I know what causes people to say, thank you, Pastor. And, and we all, in the context of our workplaces of our community places and in our families extended, we all kind of perfect this idea of respectable Christianity because the last thing we want to be seen as is imbalanced like this woman appears to be because of how much she loves Jesus. So I want to give this as a caution to us as a church this morning. Desire for people's approval and respect will always stifle Christ's following and you will forfeit the applause that matters most. Every believer comes to points in their lives when we must assess what really matters and as the old chorus says, decide to follow Jesus. And they just probably my biggest burden from this text has been how much I want to be respected and thought of as intellectually engaged. And believe me, that takes a lot of work for me to get people to think that, okay? there There is something so magnetic and attractive about the applause of people. And sometimes we get addicted to it. And we forfeit the right to be compelling believers in Jesus by how we live. This woman was not suffering from that disease. She was, and here's, here's by such sacrifice, she was free. She was unrestrained. She was unfettered, unrestricted in her love and pleasure in Jesus. And it's not because she, made, she wanted to tell everybody, I don't care what you think. That's not who she was. That thought did not enter her mind. That i got to let people know where I stand. I don't care what you think, so I'm going to go do this. That I know some people like to live that way. But when you're telling me you don't care what I think, you do. Otherwise, why would you tell me that? She had to make no proclamation. She simply had to do something. That said, Jesus, you are most precious to me. One, one sermon I heard years ago in this text focused on the idea that you, as a Christian, you come to a place in your life when the most precious Christ makes the very precious, whatever it is, disposable. Okay, when love for Christ becomes clearly what it should be, it resets all the values in my life and the thing that I thought I had to have becomes disposable in other words if i have the affection of christ the approval of christ i I appreciate your compliments but i no longer need them is that is that fair it's good the bible says give honor to whom honor is due somebody does something notable respectable noteworthy you should say something to them but that should not be the reason why they live as a christian My guess as I read through this text is that this woman was not informed by the critique of the disciples. In other words, when Judas goes off giving the detail, this could have been sold for this. I don't think she stood back and said, oh my gosh, I had no idea that my sacrifice was so profound. It literally is worth 300 denarii, which would be the wages of a common worker in the ancient world for a year. So you can do your own calculations. Mine comes out at about 40000 a year. In, in context, she took that and said, it is the appropriate sacrifice for Christ. Okay, I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not there. This, this text confronts. Their assessment of the gift's value did not surprise her, nor did it deter her from what she was committed to doing. I believe she was fully aware of the cost and poured it out in the most appropriate way. So I ask you this question this morning. Has your devotion to Jesus, your keeping of your convictions... You're staying true to yourself. Your use of financial resources. Have it, has it ever raised a red flag or drawn an accusation of extravagance? Could anyone at any point in your Christian experience look at your life and say, mm, has it ever raised an eyebrow? Cause someone to say, eh, that's getting a little, because our life should. I think we are often guilty of playing it too safe. Particularly when it comes to sharing the, was- the work of Christ. Well, in verses 6 to 7, Jesus has had enough. And in verse 6, he, he, he barks out, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? The act you are condemning as inappropriate is in fact beautiful. Right? Now, I'm adding a little bit, but I'm, I'm just interpreting what he's saying to them. What what she did, though judged by you as inappropriate, is utterly and thoroughly the right thing to do. It is good. It is honorable. And then he exposes their hypocrisy. He says, hey, you guys, the poor you, verse 7, the poor you always have with you. You can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. Meaning, this moment in redemptive history, where Christ is present and working towards the ultimate sacrifice that eternally changes things. This woman gives up a temporary thing to honor an eternal thing. I think, I think Nate Saint said it this way: He said, "He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose." Or maybe it's Eliot. Is it Eliot? It is Eliot. Jim Elliot. He's a missionary that died on the beaches... ...seeking to reach the Akua Akua Indians in South America. And everybody said, ...what a waste. That's the pressure you're up against. That when you decide to go all in... ...here's what you need to know. Critique is coming, okay... People are going to think, you've gone over the edge. You're one of them now. I had a friend of mine say this to me recently. He goes, of one of his relatives. He goes, she thinks you're... I said, tell her I am. Tell her I have a whole church that will verify that truth. <laughs> Extended family, I, all kinds. This This is interesting because... The question becomes, is Jesus disregarding care for the poor? There's no way you can believe that if you go back to chapter 10 when he's dealing with the rich young ruler and he says to him, sell everything you have and help the poor. It's just that in the context of life, there are priorities. The gospel of Jesus Christ is of eternal consequence and the care for the poor is of temporary consequence. On that basis... Jesus says in this moment, her calculus was utterly correct. She, she chose that which has eternal consequence. Now the question that, that starts to emerge, and it's kind of what Jesus is saying, it, it, what she does is an expression of priority. If you simply relieve temporary needs but never in that context speak the words of life, you fall short of the call of Christ. Okay, so the, our... Acts of generosity towards the poor and gospel proclaiming run in tandem. And if push comes to shove, one is more important than the other. And it's the thing that has eternal value. Okay, all of our acts of service and love must always be the plate on which the gospel is appropriately served for hungry, starving people spiritually. So go and do good. But don't do it motivated by a desire for the respect of people around you, for the applause of man. Do it for the good of people eternally. And I think that's really the thrust of this text. If the gospel you profess, however, does not lead to charity and love of others, you need to reexamine the gospel you profess. It cuts both ways. They go together. The Great Commission go into all the world. And James chapter 1, true religion is this, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. They are both the call of God for the church. And may God help us to preserve the foundational truth, love it, so that all of our generosity and all of our love and sacrifice for others is motivated by that gospel that has so changed us, that changed this woman. And caused the most very precious thing into her life to become disposable because of the most precious one. Does that make sense? I went through this when I bought a ring for my wife. Okay? Don't go up to my wife after the service and say, Can I see your ring? Okay? She won't be embarrassed. I will. Okay. I remember going to look to do what I could. And I didn't have much when I was in college. And It's not impressive, okay? But it was what I had. Do you see? For one person to give a $15,000 ring and another person to give, dare I admit that I only paid $600. That was a long time ago when dollars were worth so much more. Had buying power, okay? My wife was not concerned about how much I spent on it. She, I told her, I said, I did what I could. And it's fascinating that in this text, verse 8, the beginning of the verse says, in defense of this woman, Jesus says, you guys are criticizing her. She did what she could. And it's fascinating that if you go back to chapter, I think it's chapter 10. Remember the story of the widow with two mites? Here's what Jesus says. She put in all she had. She didn't do what she could do. She put in all she had. And he says the same thing here. Two unnamed women that stand out as stunning examples of extravagance. In the case of this woman, I know this. Because she was getting something. Here's the question that starts banging around in your mind. Why, in this context, did she do something that the disciples utterly failed to do in spite of everything that Jesus has said to him. I can go back and find at least three detailed predictions of the cross. Death, burial, resurrection of Christ, after having suffered much. And here's what the text says. Watch. She did what she could, verse 8. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial which assumes what event it assumes the passion of christ it assumes his suffering his crucifixion his despicable death as one cursed hanging on a tree for you and i and jesus says she did what she could she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial meaning she got something about jesus that the disciples failed to understand in an excusable fashion at some level but i think we're all grateful that they're included in the story their struggling is included in the story because it looks a lot like mine i wish my personal story looked like hers Because in verse 9, Jesus makes an amazing prophetic statement. He says, truly I tell you. And and this this is fascinating because what is he doing? He's ramping it up. He's saying, guys, I'm going to tell you the truth. Not that he ever lied, but it's like, I swear. Okay, sometimes we'll say that we probably shouldn't say it. Because, like, why do you have to say that if you're telling the truth? You should just tell the truth. Even Jesus in this context says, truly, notably. I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, which is what? The conclusion of the work of Christ. That after his burial, he will come forth from the grave as a victorious savior. In that context of truth-telling and gospel-proclaiming, he says, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will be told in honor of her. Jesus is saying, go to Christian churches around the world today, and occasionally this text... Should be proclaimed in memory of a woman who did the extravagant thing, received critique, but ultimately commendation from Christ. She rightly perceived the connection between the cross of Jesus. And her true personal need. And you can only speculate in this text as to who this woman is. Many think that she's one of the women that has come to faith in Christ. Around the experience of Simon the leper's house. And she is so overwhelmed coming out of her brokenness. And it's typical, if you read the gospels. It's typical that Jesus spent his time with sinners. With people who had a reputation. With people that you wouldn't want to be seen with. And she is one of them. So I can only imagine that she has begun to comprehend Mark 10 45 where Jesus says even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve by giving his life a freedom price for many. And somehow that truth has lodged in the heart of this woman, has borne the fruit of true saving faith that has led to extravagance towards Christ because she can't get over the fact that she has been totally forgiven. You want to fire up your extravagance, you want to fire up your generosity. Think of this song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it requires an action. My richest gain I count as loss. It becomes disposable. Do you see? That song says, look at this, and then do this. Because that is the effect of meditating on and glorying and, and talking about more and more fully the, the absolute, unbelievable magnitude of the cross work of Christ, which this, this woman only knew a little bit. She is on that side of the cross. I live on this side of the cross. And I have a greater obligation than she to be extravagant in my walk with Christ. According to this text, it is not the self-righteous charity of onlookers that will be remembered, but the rash extravagance of an unnamed woman whose devotion to Jesus leaves no room for pious calculation. The disciples are like, oh my gosh, that was worth this and this. Jesus is like, let her alone. What she has done in light of the gospel is utterly appropriate. And it was, yeah, it was a spontaneous reaction to grasping the gospel. The things that God prompts you to do and the words that God prompts you to say by his spirit matter. If you are constantly calculating when it comes to obedience and truth-telling, you're on dangerous ground. And Jesus says to the disciples, what she did is noteworthy. And I I, I think he's speaking right to them. To say, you guys are pulling out the calculator and you're getting it wrong. Put your calculator away. And when the love of Christ prompts you to extravagance, follow. Obey. Do it. In this story, a named disciple, Judas betrays Jesus to death for a paltry 30 pieces of silver. While an unnamed woman anoints Jesus for his death, giving up all that she had because she knew she had eternal life. That's sad. That one could be with Christ and, and all he wanted was a better life. Folks, that's why if you hear me talk about the prosperity of gospel, it is an utter perversion. Judas followed Christ because he wanted more. Because he got personal perks and benefits out of following Christ. This woman impoverished herself because of Christ. And she is the one who receives the applause of heaven. A couple principles and I'll close. Number one, this is more of a life lesson. I heard this on probably ESPN Sports Network. But I want you to hear it because central to this text is the critique of other followers of Jesus. And I give you a word that's important. It's important for me as a pastor, for our pastoral team. This matters. It matters in all of your life. Don't receive criticism from someone you would not receive advice from. Okay? Okay? Don't receive criticism from someone that you will not receive advice from. And Jesus says to these guys, You can just shut up. You are so woefully, you are mine. I love you. And this is the grace of God. I love you, but you are so off base on this one. And don't sacrifice the applause that matters most. For that which is temporary and cheap. And will never satisfy. You know what the applause of people does? It leaves you longing for more. And you become a slave. To that applause. Because you can't live without it. May God help us to love Christ so much. That the applause of heaven and the promise of God's applause. Motivates us in all things. Because that we are called to seek. This is not primarily a text on giving, though the principles are present. The truth of this text is God wants you fully. And when God has you fully, guess what happens? There's a whole lot of stuff in our lives time, talents, and treasure that comes in the wake of our surrender to Christ. He's not just getting a body with a name. He's getting your life and the daily living of it and the impact that he wants you to make for his glory. So when you contemplate the rich grace of Christ and when you begin to understand how great God's grace is to you in Jesus, it will shatter the bondage of material things and release you to be extravagant with the resources that God has given you. Judas is the exact opposite. He rejects the Son of Man and hazards his own life to the point that he can no longer live with himself. And he takes his life. Memory is tough, isn't it? Memory's tough. Memory of your failures is brutal. And only the grace of God can transform you you like it transformed this woman, who I'm convinced is one of the crowd around Jesus with a reputation, And she is so liberated and free that she doesn't even hear. Meaning it's just not what she listens to. She listens to Jesus. Nothing should move you more to extravagance than the cross of Christ. And I think that's the thrust of this text. She did this in anticipation of my burial, which is the whole thing. My cross work. I am struck by the fact that the 11 followers of Jesus would have redirected this woman because they failed to grasp the true reason for which Jesus came. It just didn't settle in yet. They were getting it, but it hadn't become part of their personal identity. Believers in Jesus, forgiven, free. Her identity brings out this change, this extravagant lifestyle. And when you meditate on the crosswork of Christ, like the disciples ultimately do, you begin to write things like the disciples ultimately begin to write. And that is that Christ is worthy of everything in my life because he has done so much for me. A Christian's love, sacrifice, giving should be prompted by the extravagant grace of God. Folks, listen. If what you hear me saying today causes you to say, sitting in your seat right now, "Oh my like, gosh, I need to try harder. I got to go back to that person I saw this week and I didn't help. I got, I got, I got to go back and I have to make that right." That's bondage. Every act of goodness, every act of sacrifice, every act of love that we as believers do is always a response. To the greater love of Christ. That's why the, the, the First John says this: We love Him because He first loved us. If what you hear me saying is, "I get to find my bottle of Nard in my life, my store of value, and I need I need to give it to someone, then I'll be better," you you won't. It's not until the love of God touches you and transforms you internally. Your external life will fall in line when Christ has your heart. Okay? I am not preaching works. I'm preaching grace. I believe this woman in this context is motivated by the extravagant grace that she anticipates seeing in the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. And she responds with everything because the love of Christ is transforming. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Corinthians. He said the love of Christ constrains me it, it, it binds me to the task of christian living i understand how much i am loved therefore i am truly free and if i lose focus on the cross i will find myself slowly slipping into bondage and as sinclair ferguson says smog, smuggling performance my effort into the work of grace because i'm not amazed by grace so i think i have to do it now This woman is in no way seeking to buy her way to heaven. She's not trying to impress Jesus, but she does. Isn't that cool? She didn't sit back and say, what can I do for Jesus that would finally win his love? No, she's saying, what can I do for Jesus because he loves me? Totally different. One is bondage. One is compelling freedom. Okay? And extravagance will occur in your life when you meditate on the cross of Christ, when you meditate on his love for you, his sacrifice for you, and when you remember who you really are apart from his grace. It'll change you. The Spirit of God will bring that truth. He'll make it clear to you. He'll change your heart so that you repent and say, God, forgive me. I am a sinner. My natural tendency is to try to earn your favor. I can't. I'm broken. I'm broken. But because of your love, you went to the cross to bear the full consequence of my sin. And I am required to give nothing but my broken life. Surrendered, repentant to you. And then I come into the category of the truly blessed. Christ's love liberates. I wonder this morning as we prepare to leave, what sacrifice are you contemplating by the Spirit that you are reluctant to make because you fear people's assessments? Maybe it's the public profession of your faith in the waters of baptism. And you're thinking to yourself, I want to be the balanced Christian. I don't know if I want to get in front of people and talk about Christ's love and sacrifice. It sounds kind of weird when you say it, doesn't it? I mean, do I really want to get in front of people and tell them that Jesus Christ has completely changed my life? That Jesus loved a sinner like me and went to Calvary's cross to redeem, forgive, and set free. Yes. Do you see? Don't sit back and calculate obedience. Do it. Step forward. Trust God. That's what this woman did. Our prayer should be something like this. God... Make me, and I remember this from Marie speaking to us a few years ago, God, make me reckless. God, make me, by your grace, dangerous. Not in a scary way. (laughs) God, make me extravagant. Because I am so unbelievably selfish and self-centered and self-serving. You have to put up with listening to me. But that's who I am. And only the gospel, only that Christ loved me in an undeserved, glorious fashion, only that can change me. Only that can make me beautiful. And you, good. I wasn't going to share this, but 32 years ago, I, uh, Let me read for that was a lie uh, 41 years ago i've gotten old 41 years ago i'd said no to god he wanted me to surrender for ministry and i said no i got my own plans in fact it's right in front of me i got a bright future my dad's lawyer told me so his business lawyer not his criminal lawyer he doesn't have a criminal I remember sitting in a meeting 18 years old and my dad's accountant his insurance guy and his lawyer were there and the purpose of that meeting was to demonstrate to us how the family business had the potential to support our families. As an 18 year old honestly I kind of didn't fully get it Uh, my dad's lawyer smoked a pipe, but my dad wouldn't let him smoke a cigar. My dad was like, no, you cannot smoke the cigar in my office. So he put this, his name is Al Kendall. He put this big piece of candy in his mouth, and he was talking to us. I said, Al, because you know I'm impetuous. I said, Al, you sound like a manure salesman with the sample in his mouth. <laughs> to which my dad was not happy. But the meeting went on, Al didn't care. Laid out, here's the potential. That's in front of you. For three years, that caused me to say no to God. No to what was his call in my life for ministry. And I found the temporal thing to be more attractive than the eternal thing. I'm going to tell you guys something. I made no large sacrifice. Please understand how I share that. But for a paltry promise of a paycheck... I said no to God. And I was successful and unhappy. And I want to tell you something. There is little experience in my life that has been more brutal than I was 18 to 20 years old saying no to God, successful, and unhappy. My most feared daily experience was going to bed because then, for the extrovert, it was just me and God. And it wasn't until God confronted that evil, selfish tendency, until God broke that bondage to a promise that may or may not come true. It was a sales job. It wasn't my dad's fault. It the businessman wanted to do that. My dad had no clue how to do something like that. He didn't know how to run a business. And I thank God that he overcame my willful rebellion against him to change my heart, to surrender to what he wanted. Here's how bad I am. Okay, this was clear. The service I went to, the pastor gave the invitation before he preached. He said, I want you to think about making a promise to God. If God changes your heart this morning, will you say yes to him? If he calls you in a way, he points out rebellion in your heart. If he does, I want you to raise your hand and just say, if God does that today, I will surrender. I foolishly raised my hand, and the, the battle ended. It ended in that moment. He preached the sermon, and I was like, okay. The next thing I have to do is tell my dad that I'm, I'm exiting the family business. That he had spent his life building for the benefit of his extended family. I took my dad out to lunch three times. The third time my dad says to me, because I never took my dad out to lunch. So he was like, This is weird. He said, I want the weirdest to end. What do you want to say? And it was over. I said, I I need to go into ministry. a Hoth needs to go to college. Like, we didn't even know what that meant. And God changed my heart. Now, look, folks, please understand this. I did not walk away from something substantial and large. And I, I would never want... All I want you to know is that I am capable of just overt rebellion against God. And I think we all are. This text calls us to an extravagant life. Jesus says, when you are in church, think about this woman. Think about her sacrifice. Think about the cross of Christ and let it change you. Let the power of the cross transform your heart for the glory of God. If you're here this morning you've never trusted Christ, I pray that you do not leave today saying, I need to try harder. Because if you do, you will bypass the cross of Christ and you will strive to be your own savior. You're not that good. Jesus is a glorious Savior for all who believe. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, the word that you've given to us of this woman's life is compelling, convicting, and potentially life-changing. Lord, forgive our religious tendency as we respond to this text to think that, oh, I just need to do a little more. I need to give a little more. My sacrifice needs to ramp up. My The check that I give to charity needs to increase. No, no. My appreciation of the cross needs to grow so that I understand that I am redeemed by God's amazing saving grace that transforms lives. Then my life will change by the power of the cross. So, Lord, as we... Sing our closing song. Let us revel in. Let us glory in. Let us adore the cross. And let us silence our ears to the the scuttlebutt that is so prevalent in our lives. Let us shun the desire for people's approval. And help us to live for the applause that matters most of all. The applause of Christ. Well done. Good. faithful servant. Bless now as we sing our closing song for the glory of Christ. I pray these things and all God's people said, Amen.
1: or city. Jesus, worthy is the Lamb.
2: Jesus,
1: pray before we close. Lord, we thank you this morning that we can join together in song and, and praising you, Lord. You help us to be uh, the light in the darkness, Lord, of this world. Will we surrender everything to you as we go into this week? It's, it's hard to have our pastor <laughs> speak these truths over us that we know are true, that we are maybe potentially mediocre in our faith, Lord, and comfortable. And as Americans, I think that's true. We live in a country with many freedoms and many things that are baked into our even to our politics and to our government that we are given religious freedoms. And with that can also come complacency, and I'm the first person to say that is true of me. And I'm sure many others feel the same way at times, Lord. Would you be with us, God, and please use us this week? Not to change the world, but to change those that we have influence over in our lives. God, we thank you for hard texts and hard truths. We ask that you would be with us and use us as we go from this place today, God. We give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.